If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. What if we could artificially simulate the experience of pleasure? The practice of putting electrodes in the pleasure centers of the brain, otherwise known as wireheading, has been a sci-fi dream for decades. In this episode, Oxford professor and transhumanist Anders Sandberg explores the unexpected history and modern impact of the idea, a journey that goes from Rousseau's critique of civilization via Victorian parasitologists to weird 70s science and all the way to cutting-edge AI research today. Anders Sandberg is a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, where his research concerns the societal and ethical issues surrounding human enhancement and new technologies. He's also a research associate to the Oxford Uhura Centre for Practical Ethics and the Oxford Centre for Neuroethics. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome our guest for this episode, Anders Sandberg. Welcome. My name is Anders Sandberg and I'm a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. About a year ago, I met uh, my co-author, Thomas Moynihan. This was the first time we met, uh, and the last time so far, because then COVID arrived, and we were supposed to work on another thing. And then we discovered this wonderful question, what about wireheading? What about the myth of putting electrodes into the heads of rats and that uh, causes addiction? What does this tell us about artificial intelligence, computers, civilization, and how we think about what it means to be an agent, a being that can feel pleasure? So I'm very happy to give this talk, and I would like to acknowledge uh, Thomas and the hard work in uh, making this possible, and you should all read his excellent book on existential risk. So the story begins a while ago when people uh, started worrying about the future. And in particular, when uh, many people started worrying that we might go down the wrong route. So here's a quote from Omahandran, a leading uh, thinker about the safety of artificial intelligence. And when he was talking to fellow futurists, they all brought up that maybe we would become wireheads. And then he refers to these experiments where rats were given the ability to directly stimulate the pleasure center by pushing a lever, and the rats pushed the lever until they died and they ignore everything, food or sex, to do this. And you have probably heard this story before, 
because it's part now of the myths of our culture. And this talk is going to try to look a little bit about the story before that and how we ended up thinking about wireheading long before any rats actually got electrodes into the crania and how it might affect our actual future and what it might tell us about how we quite often have some loose ideas and then we get some science that we latch on to and say, yeah, here it's an evidence that this is an actual problem. So the real classic paper about this, that is in 1954. And you can say that in 1954, James Olds discovered pleasure. If we look at the paper, especially a sequel paper in Scientific American that describes it a bit, you have this standard setup. There is an electrode in the septal region of the brain of a rat. The rat presses a lever, gets a stimulating signal, and then the question is, what happens? And Olds had already a bit earlier in 54 found that if he stimulated the rats, they seemed to want to get more stimulation in that spot. So then he and Miller followed up with this paper and uh, it generated a bit of science. The interesting thing that was going on here is, of course, that this became construed as stimulating the pleasure centers. As I'm going to come back to, this was actually somewhat revolutionary at the time. Also, of course, it led to a lot of uh, thinking where people were uh, started to envision this, not just in rats, but in humans and in civilizations. Before I really get started, I like to point out that there is a difference here between the traditional fears about vice and addiction. Already in, in the in Odyssey, there is the island of the lotus eaters where they're just while away their time in pleasure. And certainly any civilization that has encountered anything addictive will know that that's risky. What makes wireheading interesting is that this concept that using technoscience, we can make something that is supremely addicting. And as I will show, we might even worry about this hampers the civilization itself. So the link here to technoscience make it much more far-reaching. The fun thing here is, of course, wireheading was around long before the rats. Already when Alessandro Volta invented the first batteries, he tried, of course, stimulating himself and got electric shocks, and he didn't like that very much. And he tried sending an electric shock through his head, and he concluded that was really bad. He felt it very disagreeable and felt like maybe something is boiling here. You shouldn't do that. But others didn't take that safety advice uh, seriously. Johann Wilhelm Ritter, a German chemist, started experimenting uh, systematically with uh, giving himself electric shocks. And he seemed to have become somewhat addicted to it. He kept on um, stimulating every part of his body. And at first, we might say maybe that's systematic, a bit like an entomologist who's been trying to get stung by the most painful insects and create a pain scale. But most of his contemporaries started noticing that he was behaving as he was addicted. He was getting disheveled. He was not caring too much about friends. And indeed, he was reporting that stimulation of the sexual organs could be quite measurable. And eventually he died young, and many ascribe that to, well, he was just giving himself too much electrical stimulation. Now, what happened later in the 19th century was that people did a careful study of electrical stimulation of the nervous system. Gradually, it became clear how nerves worked using electrical signals. Tools for stimulation were developed. In the 1930s, Penfield did the stimulation on the surface of the brain of patients during local anesthesia and could report how they experienced it. 
tools for implant electrodes were de developed, gradually a field of electrophysiology was maturing. At the same time, in psychology, the dominant uh, paradigm was behaviorism. So behaviorism basically argued, you shouldn't talk about the inner experience. That's unscientific. That's not how we do it. We can only look at what we can observe and make operational. And in particular, saying that you have a desire to do something, mm, yeah, what does that actually correspond to? And people had this uh, concept of drive reduction of motivation, which is basically a cybernetic theory. So you have some uh, resource, let's say that uh, you're starting to have low blood sugar. That means that uh, now you get a disagreeable sensation because uh, you're feeling hungry. And that goes away if you eat something. So you get a feedback loop that causes behavior that makes you eat. Similar for all the other desires. This is basically the idea that the only reason we do anything is to return to homeostasis. There is this baseline. And once you're there, you don't want to do anything. This, of course, leads uh, to an interesting uh, question. But if you want to uh, talk about what the rats are doing, then you should expect it. If there is something it can do that doesn't actually remove any hunger or thirst, it will probably not do anything. But that's the opposite of what happens when you stimulate the rat. Instead, they got very, very excited and seemed to want to do more. This is where Old's experiment kind of broke the old mold. And he actually showed that it looks like the rats like it. And he could show it in both in a scientific way, but also in his scientific American paper, he was actually talking about pleasure centers, something orthodox behaviorists at the time would say, that's unscientific. And later on, his autobiography even pointed out that, yeah, the rats actually did uh, seem to enjoy it. You can actually recognize uh, rat facial aggressions if you're around them enough. So what happened was this was part of what torpedoed the classical behaviorist theory of drive reduction. Then there is another interesting thing, that's the myth of self-starvation. So in the original experiments, uh, the rats uh, definitely didn't die. They were spending an enormous amount of effort pressing the lever, uh, quite often several times per second. But it uh, wasn't that uh, they just did that and then uh, they uh, fell ill because they didn't want to eat. Instead, what seemed to happen is that there is a competition against other drives. So in later experiments, people started recognizing that actually, if there is a choice between self-stimulation and food, sometimes self-stimulation wins. And there are indeed experiments uh, that do lead to malnourishment. So it's not like it totally wins, but there is a competition, just like we might have a competition between going to a lecture versus eating versus uh, playing computer games. We need to decide which of our drives to, we let win. But it's not so easy, and especially some of them, uh, like when this brain stimulation, seem to be much stronger. Then, of course, it's kind of clear that you could uh, expand beyond the rodent. So already in 1968, there, there is another myth that shows up, and that is the story about a dolphin that uh, kind of got brain stimulated to death, delighted himself to death after an all-night orgy of pleasure. It's very 60s. Now, in this uh, story, there is a grain of truth. The original thing was uh, the work by uh, P.S. Lilly, who had been working indeed on putting electrodes into dolphin brain. P.S. Lilly, uh, there is much more to talk about. His research was quite important, of course, both in the history of understanding dolphins. He was convinced that they had a language one could learn. He was talking about dolphinese and was claiming he could understand some of it. 
he was experimenting on having dolphins live with humans very closely in order to establish a rapport between the species. He was a seminal person involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, present at the famous Green Bank conference, where the people were hashing out the rationale on the possibilities of communicating with alien intelligence, where indeed the famous Drake equation was uh, invented. And afterwards, the participants somewhat jokingly called themselves Order of the Dolphin. But Lily was also putting electrodes into the dolphin head in fairly crude ways. And indeed, the, the poor dolphin that died seems to have died from an epileptic seizure, which was probably just because of the implant was very, very crude. But he also did experiments in monkeys and noticed capture. And uh, he pointed out that this is a kind of motivational brainwashing. So Robert Galbraith Heath is uh, perhaps the greatest mad neuroscientist of the 20th century. And um, if any of your friends doubt that there is a need for having institutional ethics boards, you might want to show them uh, some of his papers. So in his early career, he was interested in schizophrenia and other forms of psychosis and did some uh, rather radical theorizing that maybe it's an autoimmune disease. So what about taking blood samples from people with psychosis and giving them to volunteers without psychosis and watching the effects? This hypothetical protein, taraxine, he was promoting in the 50s. It's a classic example of an idea that never led anywhere, but people were still arguing about it. He was certainly promoting the idea. It probably made his name early on. And then he went on to apply brain stimulation very early. He was first thinking of it as a way of maybe helping people who had psychotic breaks. But later, of course, noticed that maybe by stimulating the pleasure systems, you could create good outcomes. So he was developing early transistorized systems where people could wear and then stimulate. Now, he noticed, of course, that many of them reported that this could be very, very pleasurable. And then in the line of the ideas for behaviorist psychology of operant conditioning, he came up with the idea, maybe we could use this to cure some people, including perhaps his most infamous study, which was about curing homosexuality by putting in a, one of these electrodes into a, a patient. And then since the patient reported kind of feeling a sexual feeling when uh, he was stimulated, he was in a given pornography, heterosexual pornography, stimulated uh, with that, and gradually, hopefully reprogrammed according to Heath. And then eventually, and this is a part of a paper which is hilarious to read, especially when you read between the lines, a prostitute uh, was acquired and uh, they had sex. Besides the basic paper about the electron stimulation, Heath also got another paper about how an orgasm looks uh, when you have electrodes in the brain. Heath claimed that this was very successful. In practice, it wasn't that successful. Needless to say, this was pretty controversial, even at the time. Even by the standards of 1950s in the South of USA, he was actually bending medical ethics rules quite strongly. And in the end, of course, the controversies became a little bit too much for this. So in the end, this research ended, at least in his lab. But of course, the concept of wireheading has shown up in the, in the wider culture. Already old experiments were quite early. And Asimov a great popularizer of contemporary science. He wrote, of course, one of his books uh, in the early 60s, where he's already mentioned this. The year before, Arthur C. Clarke, doing the same thing, was also bringing it up. And both of them were also kind of bringing up that this might be somewhat risky. 
philosophers, of course, uh, also started to think about, well, what are the implications if we could get arbitrary amounts of pleasure? William Davis was suggesting that, uh, well, maybe we could make a pleasure helmet that fills us uh, with uh, pleasure. And then the question is, what's wrong with that? The year after, there was, of course, a very famous paper by Nozick, the experience machine, which is more of a virtual reality machine. But again, bring up this question, what's wrong with getting supreme pleasure? And typically, people's argument is, yeah, I want to, to be happy because of real things rather than imaginary things. But this was the start of it. Of course, science fiction was on the, uh, this uh, very early on. Perhaps one of the most early one is The Orchid Cage by uh, Herbert Franke in, from the early 60s, where uh, this kind of uh, deep brain stimulation plays an important role. However, the term wireheading is from Larry Niven. In many of his novels, they take place in a shared universe. And uh, there he brings up uh, this, this concept that you can do brain stimulation and that it's supremely addictive. And then, depending on where in the fictional history you are, it uh, goes from a deathly crime over to the newest of vices. And maybe it's actually all, all right if some people are just sitting around not doing very much because, well, they wouldn't have been that productive anyway. Maybe it, this is for the best. There are other concerns, of course, that you might get the side effects of stimulating the wrong part of the brain or the wrong kind of people, like Michael Crichton's Terminal Man. And you can find fascinating uh, things like uh, Greg Egan's uh, brilliant short story, uh, Reasons to be Cheerful, that is new, in a very nuanced way analyzing various forms of wireheading and trying to compare which of these forms of pleasure are actually meaningful, suggesting that it might actually be a very hard choice to decide what form of uh, pleasure is meaningful. Now, this has all been leading up to individual stimulation, individual human, dolphin, or rat brains. But it turns out that people have been concerned about wireheading civilizations too. Part of this is, of course, some of the controversies about uh, what's going on inside uh, wireheading. Is it really pleasure that you're getting when you get stimulated there? Or is it actually uh, that its receptal area is causing um, a desire to do something? So Berridge and Kringelbach have been writing a critique of many of the classical papers, pointing out that we have a wanting system that makes us go towards things we want, and a liking system that makes us enjoy them. Normally, they are connected. When I take a sip of coffee, I both want it and I get a bit of liking out of it. But if I were a total addict, I might desperately want it. I might need it, but I'm not getting any pleasure out of it. And of course, this is even more clear from uh, cocaine addiction, etc. It might be that a lot of these brain stimulation has been activating wanting systems rather than like it. We have been having a pursuit of something rather than actual pleasure. However, it does seem to be a true thing that there are parts of the brain that do correspond to actual liking and actual pleasure, which also raises another interesting question. Could you get pleasure without wanting it? Many people are thinking that this research is risky. And it would be very risky for the entire civilization. And as you might notice, this comes up long before Olds and Milner. Aldous Huxley is already talking about how the pleasures of modern civilization is uh, making us uh, getting addicted. And of course, J.D. Bernal, the great Irish crystallographer, socialist and futurist, he also had this uh, vision that, oh, we can turn into cyborgs, but that could be very risky if we change our motivation system. And indeed, Based on his ideas uh, in Star Maker by Olaf Stapelow, there is a description of how civilization comes to its demise because of widespread use of uh, the pleasure radio. 
These ideas go back you know, to etology. So the classic example is, of course, supernormal stimuli in nature. Birds uh, might uh, want uh, big eggs to nest. So if you give them an artificial very big egg, they're going to nest that in preference over their own smaller eggs. It might be that young uh, seagull uh, chicks, they, um, they even tend to identify the parent by a red spot on the beak. So if you uh, give them a bit of wood with several red spots, they prefer that to their own parent. So this maladaptive behaviors, you might argue that we are creating them artificially, and that might indeed uh, cause trouble. And this goes back a long way. Indeed, Rousseau was concerned that Paris was already turning into an environment uh, of supernormal stimuli even in the, in the 1750s. Basically, we have artificial amusements that are so much better than the natural amusement that they outcompete our desires. And that leads to degeneracy. And then uh, we are not going to reproduce, and then humanity dies out. There are various concerns along these lines that we are maybe making the world too delightful for our own good. And where is the end point of that? Well, that might indeed be that we uh, turn into mollusks. So there is this interesting side stream, which I'm probably not going to have time to do full justice, among Victorian biologists investigating parasites and realizing that many of the parasites were previously much more independent organisms that have evolved to lose many of the organs that we don't need. They mostly need the tubing to connect it to whatever we're living on. And the problem might, of course, be that in this uh, parasitic life, well, all the other things go away. And it's not a hard step here to go from that we have created a safe technological artificial world that is giving us uh, everything we want, to that we become essentially parasites on the technological machinery, which means that we might actually devolve into something backing everything. We might end up as Darwinian tapeworms. In Julian Huxley's essay of a biologist, he's making an interesting discussion about how intelligence might work in different species. And he points out that tapeworms might actually not want to have brains. So we might devolve into something that is utterly brainless, but very happy. And that is, of course, a fear that then shows up in Haldane and others, that we might actually end up being addicted. And if everything works out so well, we don't need to uh, actually function as humans. We lose out something very fundamental. Indeed, Plato was also kind of thinking about mollusks. This idea, you can say, is, well, that's Victorians thinking that we need to work hard to be proper upstanding citizens. But there is, of course, a general issue here that we might actually want to outsource to machines. Already Samuel Butler in the 1870s was considering that we might become parasitic on our infrastructure. And then this line of thinking leads to modern thinking in transhumanism and posthumanism, that maybe we want to outsource part of our brains. Why do I need to know where things are when I can just get a map? And uh, as uh, Nick Bostrom describes in The Future of Human Evolution, one scenario might be that we outsource more and more. We outsource language abilities, math abilities. Why should I have my memory in my head when I can have it in cloud? And in the end, we end up with a civilization where there is nobody around. There is a great economy. There is a lot of technology. Every curve is pointing upwards. The only problem is, of course, that there is nobody around. So in this case, you might have a scenario where we either because of pursuit of pleasure or pursuit of effectiveness, end up with a civilization that has actually lost all value. Scott Alexander, in his brilliant Meditations of Moloch, 
suggests that this might be a common failure mode for many different scenarios. And wireheading is just one of them. Indeed, it has been proposed as a solution of the Fermi paradox. Why aren't we seeing any in aliens? And maybe it's possible that progress undermines itself because uh, at the end, you don't need to do very much. You can live in your utopian world and uh, then you have inner bliss. And at that point, there is no point anymore in looking in the outward or sending messages. Indeed, some people are suggesting that maybe it's obesity that is the problem. We might be in having that all sufficiently advanced civilization solve the many of the problems, but the evolutionary demands, like getting food, then make them do maladaptive things, which means that they're actually having trouble doing anything else. This is not just a problem for humans and maybe for civilization. It might also be a problem for artificial intelligence. It turns out that software quite often misbehaves even when you give it a goal it's trying to achieve. In the early 80s, Lennart's Erisco program got punished in that sense for doing errors. And it figured out that if I just shut myself down, I'm not going to get punished at all. There are various other interesting uh, systems where you find that they are misbehaving quite wildly and doing quite creative things that maximize what we told it to maximize, but not what we actually think is the point of playing the game. This is a bit of a problem because when you start thinking about using robots in the real world, autonomous cars, or having software regulate our stock market or our infrastructure or our nuclear arsenals, we better get the reward function right. But many of these systems turn out to be very good at finding ways of short-circuiting that reward function, making it solve the problem that we gave it, but rather than what we wanted it to solve. And this can be pretty disastrous. Even more interestingly, it can do it in a highly active way. Our picture of the indolent wireheader that is just sitting around in total bliss can, in the case of a robot, be something that is rushing around, reorganizing the world in order to maximize its own reward. So this has led to work on abstracting wireheading, essentially linking it to the concept of Goodhart's law in economics and sociology, that if you have a measure of something, you, te uh, you tend to maximize the measure rather than the thing you try to maximize, which is why we get great inflation in schools. We want to maximize knowledge among the pupils, but unfortunately, we measure that using grades, so everybody tries to get good grades. And the problem here is, of course, that um, we're very bad at actually getting the goals right. At the same time, just to end here, I think we should recognize that there is also a stigma attached to pleasure that is wrong. I think it is a mistake to say that pleasure is wrong. Pleasure it might be good. Indeed, if you're a hedonistic utilitarian, you might say that is the good. That is what we should strive to. But quite often, there is an, a tendency to assume that there is something wrong with wired. You get in pleasure without doing anything useful. David Pierce, who's been promoting the idea that we should re-engineer ourselves so we don't suffer and get maximal pleasure, points out that it might be possible to actually live a life in dopamine overdrive, being very happy, very dynamic, and not at all drooling around in a corner, but actually achieving things. Another interesting example from science fiction is infinite fun space in Ian Banks' novels, where the superintelligent artificial intelligence are having the most enjoyable experience in their abstract mathematical spaces. It was good for them, and they really felt this is what they should be doing. Except that somebody needs to mind the store. There is somewhere a power supply to the server, and you better make sure that nobody cuts the power. So you need to care about the actual material world. So that principle tells you that your pleasure is contingent on many other things. So what is the conclusion here? 
I think the main one is we should be aware of counterfeit utility. The idea that normally we get pleasure for doing things that are good for us, or at least what evolution on average felt was good for us. Now, if we can get pleasure just arbitrarily, that means that you actually disconnect it, and we're now going to go off and do things that are not necessarily good. But I think another important thing about this discussion is that it illuminates that these concerns have been around much longer. Rousseau was kind of recognizing that many of the things in his Paris was indeed a counterfeit. It was acting. It was not real and authentic. And in some regards, that was very bad. Of course, now we might also say that many of those uh, pleasures were also beautiful things that had an aesthetic value. But we should be more careful about what kind of uh, pleasure we look for and how we get them. Because controlling your motivation is the greatest superpower you can possibly get. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.